As New Yorkers prepare to elect a new mayor for the first time in eight years, a new book provides a deep dive into how the city evolved under four previous administrations, Koch, Dinkins, Giuliani, and Bloomberg. It's called New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Author Thomas Digest says over the last few decades, three different New York cities have emerged. He joins us now to talk about these different versions of New York and more. Thomas, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So the saying goes, New York, New York, so nice they named it twice. Why did you name it three times for the title of your book? Yeah, it's, I named I found a quote by a guy named Holly White, who was kind of the godfather of a lot of the changes that start in the 70s and 80s that I think are really important for changing New York in these years. But he was an urbanist and he was once asked, what are your three favorite American cities? And he said, New York, New York, New York. And it just seemed to express so many basic truths about the city uh, and the kind of passion we feel about it. But one of the arcs of the book is that uh, there are kind of three evolutions of the city over these 35 or 40 years. So it seemed a, a quiet way of expressing that. Um, and also really doffing a cap to Holly White, who if I was to boil his thoughts down to one thing, it's that cities are, and this is something he said, cities are, they exist for the face-to-face -face exchange between people and trying to restore people to the city, giving them life on the street and kind of making people first was the most important thing for him in bringing the city back in the 70s and 80s. And I think it's a page that we're looking at now, too. Yeah. So what are the three New York cities that we've seen over the past few decades? I, they, you know, I, rather than go by mayor, it really is kind of arc wise. I, I think there's the, the Ed Koch and Dinkins era, really, which has its own kind of up and down within it when the city comes out of the fiscal crisis and has this kind of painful retrenchment period of austerity, job cut and stuff. And then there's a crazy renaissance that happens when Wall Street takes off again and you get that first wave of, of kind of high society, New York coming back into play. And then it really all comes crashing down by the time you get to 89 and that kind of crazy summer of 89 with do the right thing and the kind of racial tensions of that time. Dinkins is elected and he's really the last progressive of um, New York before de Blasio. And that's kind of looked at as, I think a lot of people look back and look at that whole period as one thing. And it was so much more complex, but then Giuliani comes in um, and that's a kind of uh, reformation New York um, in a very Savonarola way. You know, I mean, he goes in and really takes some of those ideas in the first uh, iteration, the first evolution about um, letting people take over space again of, of how we define redefining public space from being a kind of free-for-all to being a place that we share, which are two different things, I think. Public space being a free place, public space being a shared space. And Giuliani uses that idea, I think, to inflict order on the city. And there are a lot of good things that happened during this period, obviously, but a lot of them are based on work that are done before him. You know, Dinkins really tees up a lot of the things that Giuliani takes advantage of. Um, Including the reimagining of Times Square, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, Dinkins is the one who signs the deal with Disney to come in and do that stuff. And, and you know, Giuliani absolutely takes credit for all that stuff. The ideas were already in motion of what that was going to look like and was been going on for a long time, but finally it had come to a head during there. Um, that safe street, safe kids law that 
put new cops on the streets was something that Dinkins pushed for and passed. So the, a lot of it was teed up. I kind of compare it to Buck Showalter teeing up the Yankees for Joe Torrey to come in. You know, it's, they both took great advantage of, of a lot of work done before. And then the third, of course, is after 9-11 when Bloomberg comes in and there is this reimagining of New York, um, building off of a, of a very kind of tragic unity that the city found, a kind of weird grace that we lived in after 9-11. Um, the city wanted to get past Giuliani. Um, they really, anyone who is, remembers 9-11, that day started with everyone getting ready to go to the primary and we're kind of like, time for Rudy to go. This is time for to go. And um, his legacy after that is so odd, considering that the city was so tired of the racial strife, so tired of his own personal drama going on with his divorce and everything. It was time for him to finish. So when Bloomberg comes in, it was this technocrat. Um, he, he would complete upset victory. Uh, and people thought he was really buying the office, which you could argue he did. But he did bring a remarkable amount of, of expertise to it and understanding and acceptance of expertise. Um, that he used in many terrific ways. Unfortunately, areas that he was not particularly interested in um, fell behind and people fell behind. And so there was a great reimagining of what the city could be, but that idea of us all doing it together um, really slipped much deeper than I think he even intended. How has the definition of what it means to be a New Yorker changed over the decades? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because it is held, in my mind, kind of held firm in a long way, you know? I mean, one of the things that really defines this era is a wave of migration, a huge wave of migration. You know, about 1.5 million immigrants stay here. Twice as many actually come through and live in New York for some time during those 35 years. But it's like the whole population of Dallas or Philadelphia moves to New York, and most of them are immigrants. So the idea of the city being able to kind of take everybody in and, and have them become New Yorkers, that's something that becomes even more true than it was. But I would say, I mean, I moved here in 1980 and the difference was, you know, you did find your people and you found your networks. No one moves to New York to be by themselves. You know, they come to find their people. And I think that changed to some degree. I think the internet change that. There wasn't the need to come to New York to kind of fly your freak flag that there was in 1980. This was one of the only places in the U.S. where you could sort of truly be that person. And I think the internet has let that happen in a much broader way. Um, and on a, on a light, living sense in New York, in 1980, there was a, a feeling that you kind of survived the city. Um, that, that you were often working against it. You know, that, that you're, you're real triumph at the end of the day was coming home, shutting the door and saying, okay, I made it, you know, and that really did change over time. And, and we romanticize now. And I think that's a mistake. As you mentioned, this is a city of immigrants. This book dives into the impact of immigration on New York City. What aspect of that history do you think is the most important to talk about? Well, I mean, God, you're, you're asking the wrong guy for the most, you know, I have like seven big themes that I tackle in the book from AIDS to immigration to cultural change, you know, that, and I found that all of these things really work together, that it's so hard to discuss any of them in, in, a, in a vacuum, you know, it's hard to talk about art without talking about real estate, you know, they're crucial thing that we have to talk about in the story. So kind of parsing out one of them is, is really difficult and in a way contrary. I wanted to make this about throwing it all in the blender and, and 
kind of seeing where the intersections are. Where did these things really work together? When did they fight each other? Um, because I think when I started the book in 2013, there was, and to my mind, there remains to some degree, a very binary discourse around the city, good and bad, gentrification, good, bad, you know, I mean, policing, good, bad. And if you've lived here over that amount of time, um, we can't really boil things down to these good and bad kind of morality play conversations. So I wanted to go back, try to identify the change, identify the people who made the change, the ideas, the events, and kind of express the lived experience of this to get so we can look at things like gentrification, we can look at things like crime, identify why, um, hopefully to some degree, what worked, what didn't, and maybe be able to take something away that we can use in our lives. What inspired you to take on this project? You know what, I, I, it was 2013, it was the end of Dubois, it was the end of Bloomberg, and uh, something felt different. You know, Bloomberg going felt like a very uh, the end of, of a really discreet era, de Blasio coming as we're getting back to the kind of old school New York progressivism, which I think is overstated as a political reality as it goes. But, you know, my own neighborhood, I'd lived on the Upper West Side for most of those 35, 40 years and had seen that neighborhood change in, in very dramatic ways um, for the good and for the bad. And I really did want to, like I said, identify, kind of get into the roots of that. Take us back to the days of the AIDS crisis in New York City, and what were the greatest lessons that came out of that time? Well, I mean, I wish we had learned more from it. Um, it's interesting because when the pandemic began, it was natural if one had lived through that era to, to start thinking about that, because AIDS was, in a very basic way, a kind of crisis of connection. It was about networks of, of you know, gay society in New York and how people interacted and, and trying to defeat it was uh, how people approached the networks that were involved was kind of one of the major issues that went around it. But the impact was immense. I mean, I was working in the arts world or in a, a talent agency in the book world, and it was just a part of daily life. You know, so many of the men that I worked with passed within a, a number of years and watching friends um, get sick was debilitating for the city. You never thought that we would get past it in a very fundamental way. And it did have a major impact on how um, the gay community defined itself and interacted um, with themselves and, and with the straight world. And it laid the groundwork for when we talk about how Giuliani cleaned up New York and how the city cleaned itself up. There is a kind of unstated, or there was at the time at least, a very unstated aspect that it was kind of cleaning itself up from AIDS, that it was kind of cleaning up from that and, and you know, Cloroxing these liminal spaces that the gay community had lived in. And um, that was horrifying. That was also a part of gentrification, which we talk about in, tend to talk about now in very, uh, you know, racial terms and in kind of income terms. But um, you know, the gay community was really kind of moved out as, as gay men died. They literally would Clorox bleach the apartments and move new people in who were happy to move into these lovely, fabulous neighborhoods, you know. So the impact on the city was more than just um, a matter of grief. It was also a real estate matter. It was a cultural matter. We lost thousands of, uh, as Fran Lebowitz says, losing the audience was as important as losing the artist. So um, it, it was an enormous, uh, just kind of horrible hole in the city's life that, you know, we can say we got past. I think people don't even realize how tragic it was and how poorly straight New York reacted to it. 
Um, people would not ride subways. They wouldn't go downtown. They wouldn't touch people. Um, it, it was stunning and sad. Mayor Koch did receive his fair share of criticism for his handling of the AIDS crisis. Talk to us a bit about that and why he was criticized. Well, it, it's complicated because most, you know, he was widely uh, accepted as being gay himself. You know, he, he, he uh, uh, campaigned in 77 with uh, Bess Meyerson, you know, at his side as if they kind of had this weird boyfriend-girlfriend dance, which was, you know, one of the history's great beards, right? I mean, it wasn't, they really had no romance, but so there was an expectation. He had passed early bills on, um, on gay rights and living in the village and stuff. So there was an expectation that he would be more of an advocate. He had Henry Galzahler as his arts commissioner, a very, very out at the time um, gay man who would bring, you know, his partner to meetings and stuff and into dinners and kind of shock people. So on one hand, there was that Koch, but then there was the Koch who was dear friends with, um, with the Cardinal, who allowed the, the archdiocese to sue the city to not um, have to deal with AIDS in certain ways or in hiring issues. And uh, Koch did not really wake up to the level of the crisis and provide any kind of leadership and didn't seem to want to hear much about it. So it was incredibly painful, I think, for many people to come from him, someone that had always been considered or had been considered an ally. So it was complicated. Which mayor did you appreciate most researching and writing about? Um, you know, I, I learned a lot more about Dinkins. You know, I think um, he was certainly not the greatest mayor. I think he came in with true expect, kind of true desire of things he wanted to do. But he was also the only one out of these four who never, he had no hunger for it fundamentally. You know, he didn't grow up saying, I want to be mayor. Um, out of that whole gang of four Harlem group, he was the least likely of them to take that level of power. And so his great intentions and his, I think he felt an enormous amount of responsibility um, for African-Americans and for black New York, the import of, of what had happened. He was elected mayor now. Um, he tried to carry that with a great amount of dignity and did carry it with a lot of dignity. But when you go back and read the press coverage of him, then it, it's jaw-dropping. Um, and, and again, really more than disappointing um, how he was treated and written about in the press. And it's hard not to feel that edge there. So he was in a very, and, and nor was he Black New York's favorite politician by any stretch. He was kind of the Black politician that white New Yorkers were going to accept, which so I found that he was really in a no-win situation. And so I did admire uh, kind of his, the amount of heart he put in and, and what he really wanted to get to. The other three were able to drive the truck the way they wanted to. And I think had much freer reign to, were not fought against constantly the way I think Dinkins was. Is there anything that any of these mayors accomplished that forever changed the city that might not be as widely known that you discovered in your research? You know, I, I think we underestimate the impact that Koch's housing program had. Um, I, I think there was an enormous amount. I mean, when you think of that New York and the South Bronx of the blasted acres of rubble and all that kind of thing, you know, Koch, into some degree with Governor Mario Cuomo, Andrew's father, um, put together in the mid to late 80s, basically an enormous campaign for housing in New York and through everything at it. I mean, and basically entertained every idea anyone had. And it was a, a kind of miraculous marshalling of public and private interests of 
you know, Brooke Esther and the Nehemiah plan of Saul Alinsky's followers and just really every good idea got thrown against the wall and a huge amount of housing was built. Um, old buildings were, you know, it's always a process of taking old buildings in New York and turning them over, but it got a huge amount of, of uh, power behind it. And I think it really did lay the groundwork when we talk about what ended or what kind of broke the back of crime in the 90s restoring those neighborhoods meant an enormous amount. Um, you know, crack was a thing that really fed on chaos. You know, it needed empty lots. It needed empty buildings. It needed that kind of destroyed empty streets to really operate. And so rebuilding neighborhoods, getting the houses out there in high volume, helping people get equity and kind of rebuild their neighborhoods the way we people should be able to do, you know, in a city and anywhere, um, it really empowered them to be able to do that. And I think the impact of that on the city was enormous. It also played a big role with immigration. A lot of these houses were kind of geared towards the taste of new immigrants. And so that also further drew people to New York as a destination of where they could get a start. So, I mean, that's housing, I think, is the first step in any big change. And I, I'd like to think we'd be thinking about that this time, too. Many artists lament the fact that they can no longer afford to live in New York City. Of course, once many of them lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, then they moved to Brooklyn to find more affordable places to live, and now many of them have fled New York City. They live in upstate New York and other communities across the country. Talk to us more about the impact of housing costs on the arts community in New York City. I mean, it's been you know, it's hard to say devastating. You know, I mean, I was talking to an arts group in Gowanus that's working on that whole redevelopment thing in a very active and engaged way. And so there are still artists throughout the city, but that idea of that East Village, you know, studio for a hundred bucks a month kind of thing, it makes it hard to do. And, and I think when we talk about the arts becoming so much more commercialized over these years, of they're an art market and it's all about money and that kind of thing. I mean, it's hard to hang around and just be an artist in New York. You know, um, you have to make money. And that really did start in the 80s. I think that had a real impact. It's one of the things that made art so much more of a business. And it wasn't just museums and galleries and oligarchs. It was needing to make a living and sell your stuff. It's hard to be Van Gogh in New York. So I think it has certainly pushed people out into the edges and artists and arts um, have been a gentrifying impact. You know, they always, they have been for a long time. Um, and they were in Manhattan in the 1800s. You know, Greenwich Village was kind of where Bohemians went and then it became cool. And that was a long time ago. So that cycle's always happened, but we're really pushing out into the edges now, you know, of, of where you can afford to live and be an artist in New York. So I think in the long-term big picture way, it's, it's rough for the city, it's not good. New York is a place where we should have space for young people, creative people to come and be able to afford to create and, and, and not have to, um, sure, you know, working, you know, bussing tables and stuff. I mean, that's expected, but paying 90% of your income to try to live in a space is just not making sense and it's not good for the city. I would think that could be especially true now as the city looks to rebound from the pandemic and looks to the arts to help bring the city back. I agreed. I mean, I know it, it's reasonable. I am very much a capitalist. We need money. We need corporations. It's part of what a city does. But, you know, we're, we're so worried about a certain group of, of people who have come to the city um, with an idea of the city serving them. And, oh, my God, they might leave. You know, oh, my God, they're going to go to Miami. 
you know, okay, <laughs> I wouldn't, I'd be very, very happy to trade a bunch of those people for a whole lot of young artists who um, could have not just economic impact on the city, but a cultural and social impact as well. I mean, that is basically, that's like, you know, trading a couple guys in their 30s for a whole bunch of future draft picks. You know, that, that's where we are at this point. I'm happy to make that deal. New York City parks were no doubt a respite for so many people during the pandemic. And perhaps today, a lot of people take grass for granted as they hang out in places like Sheep Meadow and Central Park. But if they knew the history, they might not take grass for granted, right? It was, I mean, it was totally, it was dirt, you know. And I, I give an enormous amount of credit to Mayor Koch's first parks commissioner, who was Gordon Davis, who was a really fascinating guy who um, came into it as a Lindsay guy, didn't really like Koch and what he stood for because he thought he was very much a kind of conservative. But he looked back to Holly White, he looked back to Frederick Law Olmsted. And when I was talking about redefining public space, he really saw that as uh, parks as the place to begin that consciously, to begin the experiment of helping New Yorkers understand how to use public space together. Because honestly, before that point, um, when we think about the pooper scooper law, another important piece of this, where people literally stepping in dog poop was just a trope of living in New York. You walked around, you stepped in dog poop. And there was an enormous fight against that. I mean, people compared it to um, the Holocaust of the Nazis forcing Jews to pick up dog. I mean, it was just the, the discourse was crazy. And we just take that for granted now. And that was just people used the streets as they would and the parks. And so Davis did a number of things. One of them was restoring the sheep meadow, which was really a dust bowl. You know, people were encouraged to use the parks and they basically destroyed them and the city did nothing to help bring them back to life. And so he felt we needed a balanced kind of sense. And so he created the urban park rangers who were, you know, went around with Smokey the Bear Hats, who were really empowered to just help people understand how to use the parks. Don't step here because flowers are nice and maybe everybody would like to enjoy the flowers. Don't drop your garbage here because, you know, it's gross and you shouldn't do that. And just helping people to behave differently because he really did sincerely believe, and I think he was right, that people wanted to behave differently in the park. They were going to the park already to be different from the office or wherever they were. So just helping them to care for it more created, a, a, engendered kind of that flame of, gee, we can we can live a little differently here. We don't have to always leave dog poop for the next person, you know? And those are tiny, tiny things, but they really built up and I think made an enormous difference that Giuliani weaponized. And that's kind of one of the things that I really wanted to kind of figure out in the book because people were talking about these basic, what Adam Gopnik and Olmsted called commonplace civilization. You know, how do we just live together? Giuliani had taken them and really turned them into, a, a, you know, I don't know, a form of oppression is a bit strong, but order, you know, civility, this way of behaving that you're supposed to be, as opposed to just like, you know, put the seat down. I mean, it's basic stuff. You know, how do we live together kind of ways that, that hopefully will triumph again? Looking back over the last several decades, what policies would you say have contributed most to racial injustice in the city as we continue toward, you know, dismantling systemic racism? That is tricky to pull that apart. Policing is the obvious one. Um, you know, that, that is such a long and fascinating story because uh, one thing that no one was asking for was to get rid of the police. You know, all, every march that started after every 
horrible case from Arthur Miller and Michael Stewart, you know, Eleanor Bumpers, all through these many, many, many cases of horrifying police brutality and murder. Um, the ask is, could we, you know, could we please have safe, fair policing? Um, every community in the city wants policing. They want it to be fair and they want it to be safe. And so finding that place is, is a real challenge and that has been incredibly, incredibly detrimental. Um, you know, again, housing is a huge, huge issue just because it sucks so much capital out of neighborhoods. You know, one of the horrible impacts of 2008, I've had people say, well, the city rebounded after that. I'm like, it did, kind of. You know, it rebounded in Midtown, but out in neighborhoods like Jamaica and, you know, the Bronx and stuff where people had bought their houses, all the people under Koch, you know, who had actually done the right thing and, and put equity in their homes and saved money and paid their mortgage every month, found themselves because of the inequity in the, in the, you know, in the economy, having to use some of these financial products, which were really dodgy, um, you know, these 0%, you know, balloon payment kind of things. And so they got smashed in 2008. And people who had done all the right things, you know, by, you know, the right things, I'm making air quotes, you know, um, got money sucked out of there. And so billions of dollars were sucked out of neighborhoods that had been doing all the things that they'd been told they were supposed to do, you know. And so now when we look at crazy housing costs and the fear, you know, I read an article in New York Times saying, you know, gee, the real estate investment trusts are not putting in their, you know, it's a big concern that their profits are down when people are paying 50, 60% of their, you know, of their income every month that could be spent on other parts of the economy, you know, within those neighborhoods to build up local economy, to help small businesses, you know? So um, I, I think that policing and, and, and housing are just basic pieces and people know what they want to do. They know how they want to live. Let's just help them do that. What, if anything, would you say New York has lost over the last four decades that you would like to see come back, whether that be a policy or simply an attitude? Right. I mean, again, I go back to Holly White with that face-to-face -face exchange thing. You know, I mean, that um, the pandemic, uh, I think we have to take as a weird, you know, a horrifying, weird year in there where we weren't able to do that. But when you look at the rise of retail, um, and, and the internet just in general. And I know, you know, God knows my kids are both in their 20s and they'll argue with me all night long about this, but that kind of, the sense that the city was made of just all of these face-to-face -face kind of exchanges, you know, that whether it was the guy, you know, getting the same sandwich order at your place you go to every day, to your dry cleaner, to the people in your building, like, there was a whole tissue of that, you know, and it was deeper. It was so much deeper because a lot of retail and things like that were not, it was pre big box. There was literally a guy you went to for your screwdrivers. And there was a guy, I mean, there, there, that level of small business was fascinating and how it held the city together and kind of the tissue of it was terrific. So losing the streetscape um, to the way we have, I mean, it's still vibrant. It's still so much more vibrant than almost any other place, but to not get nostalgic about it, that was really something that I, I think is a goes across all ages. I mean, I can tell you, I might be nostalgic for things I did when I was 18 in 1980, which I would rather not talk about publicly, you know, but I mean, that was a different city, you know, and, and that was a different time and you're not going to have that back. And that was for certain, you know, headspaces. But this 
was something that everyone shared in New York, that face-to-face, forget-about-it kind of mindset that, that was also incredibly kind. You compare being a New Yorker to a famed high-wire act in the city's history. Tell us about that. Well, back in the 70s, there was, a, a, I think, the greatest performance art piece maybe ever was Philippe Petit shot, if you've ever seen the movie Man on a Wire, he shot a metal wire between the two towers of the World Trade Center and for better part of an hour, walked across them one morning um, and just did this high wire act between the two towers of the World Trade Center. And just the, the, the sheer you know, bravado of that, but also the delicateness of it. You know, the, he's walking around on this little wire that's an inch thick or so, and just having the guts to do that and the beauty of it um, and the, the chutzpah, you know, to be able to do that so expressed New York to me. And I think that is so much of the way it is to be a New Yorker where we're just torn between these two sides all the time, you know, of, of them and, you know, me and we and them and us and building and tearing down. And all of these tensions are what make living in the city so exhausting and so wonderful. Well, now it seems like a great time to read New York, New York, New York, because we have a mayoral election coming up very soon. When I look at that cast of people running for the Democratic nomination, I just think for me, the most important thing out of all of these mayors that I cover in the book, that the city loves a leader. Um, it needs people to feel that there's someone in charge um, who has their back and who is trying to think in everyone's best interests. And I think the next mayor needs to somehow be able to put everyone at the table and rather than kind of grind axes, needs to explain to all of us, how we belong, what, what our responsibilities are, and how we can try to start coexisting in here again, as opposed to operating out of, of settling scores one way or the other. I, th- I think we've got to do better. Thomas Dijah, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you so much. Thomas Dijah's latest book is New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. He's also the author of the award-winning The Third Coast, When Chicago Built the American Dream, as well as three novels. I'm George Bodarki. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.